Good morning. If you would open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. 1 Peter, chapter 3. I have a fond memory of a conversation that I had with one of the young children in this church. Uh, quite the spunky little person, so I enjoy conversations uh, with her. I think she was three or four years old at the time, and I thought that it would be fun to ask her some of our family's catechism questions, things we've used with our children since they were little, and our family catechism usually starts with the simple question, who made you? The answer, of course, God made me. The second question which I posed to her that day is, what did he make you to do? What did he make you to do? And my young friend paused for just a moment and then with childish confidence said, chores. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I love that answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right, you're right. <laughs> chores, it wasn't the answer I was looking for, but I didn't enjoy it. Uh, the answer I was looking for was, he made me to love him and obey him. He made me to love him and obey him. He made us to love him and obey him. And that's why we come to his word this morning. And the particular passage in front of us, I need to warn you, is a challenging passage. It's challenged in our culture. It is challenging in our own hearts perspective, at least in this era of the world. It is a challenging word. Therefore, we need to remember that we have been made by God to love him and obey him. And so with that demeanor, we come even to the challenging parts of his word, lovingly and reverently, looking for his wise and good authority to be demonstrated through his word. So with that, with that demeanor, with that loving obedient demeanor, let us read 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. You may have heard the famous quote from Mark Twain, who said it wasn't the parts of the Bible he could, he could not understand that bothered him. It was the parts he could understand 
And I suspect if he lived today, this would be one of those parts. Authority in general, as you know, is questioned in our culture, uh, somewhat ironically because power seems to be worship, but authority is questioned or even directly maligned. And the idea of a wife submitting to her husband is viewed as archaic at best and offensive and demeaning at worst. And yet our culture is not God. In our own hearts, we find a desire for our lives to be self-defined or self-governed. In the words of the famous poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Or in the words of Rene Descartes, philosopher, I think, therefore I am. Enticing, stirring even, and false. We are not our own God. Who made you? God made me. What did he make you to do? To obey him and to love him. This passage speaks first to wives, and then in verse 7 it transitions and speaks to husbands, but because marriage is so important a topic and, and so maligned and undermined a topic in our modern culture, we thought it would be appropriate to give two weeks uh, to walk through this passage this week to study this section addressed to wives, and I will provide also some implications of these verses for husbands, and then next week to study the word addressed to husbands, and we'll provide some implications for that passage to wives as well. And obviously this entire section has relevance to every Christian in terms of our understanding of how we can encourage or challenge our married friends if we are not married, and more importantly, how it reveals the way that God issues his commands and authority to us when those commands are difficult and burdensome in our own minds, how we can lift our eyes to see the goodness and purpose of God when we are called to obey. So let's dive into this section. According to this passage, we might summarize it this way, see if you could agree with this summation. Christian wives can love and obey God, which is our calling as human beings, can love and obey God by godly submission to their own husbands. And here's the perhaps even more difficult part, even when those husbands are ungodly. We might put it this way. Wives honor Christ by godly submission to their own husbands, even when their husbands are ungodly. That's the summation of this passage. I think Peter basically breaks his command here into three sections. We might label them winsome submission, then beautiful character, and finally godly heritage. Winsome submission, beautiful character, and godly heritage. Let's dive into this first point, chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, Peter says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That word likewise draws our attention back to this general section, which began uh, in verse 13, where he is addressing the topic of various roles of life in which Christians are called to be submissive, even in difficult circumstances. Submit, he says, in verse 13, to government officials. Submit, he says, even to unjust masters, in verse uh, 18. And then here, submit wives to your own husbands. And then in the midst of this passage, he reminds those who are submitting in difficult circumstances of the Lord Jesus, 
who submitted ultimately even to the cross itself, entrusting himself to his father, knowing that ultimately he is evaluated by the one who judges justly. And then we come in chapter 3, likewise, Peter says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Here is this clear but difficult passage and it has a very plain and blunt meaning. It can't be explained away. It can't be watered down or diluted, but it, it should be clarified, yes, it, lest it be misunderstood. So I just want to walk quickly through, before we get to the main thrust of this calling, what I, what I might describe as, as pillars of protection so that this passage is not misunderstood. Uh, you might think of a, a fence or a stone pillar that guards something that is precious. And I think there are some biblical truths that complement or, or surround this passage that we need to know so that we don't misunderstand what Peter is stating here. Let me just go through them quickly. First of all, a husband has no authority to call his wife to disobey God. No human authority can command anyone to sin against the Lord. And that includes government officials, masters, and husbands. If a husband were to call his wife to sin or to neglect some command of godliness, it is her duty to the Lord to obey God's word rather than her husband. Secondly, a husband is called to lay down his life for his wife, to sacrifice himself for her. You can read the extended passage in Ephesians 5 for more study there. So the Bible never endorses a kind of self-centered, chauvinistic leadership. Husband does have real authority, real authority that is given by God. And because it is given by God, it will be called to account by God. And the way God has defined authority to be utilized, it is through self-sacrifice for the good of those that you are responsible for. Thirdly, a woman should not be in physical danger from her husband. It is the duty of every able-bodied man to protect any woman who is in physical danger and to ensure that she is safe. And so that you know, this is our standard practice as pastors to make sure that whatever marriage troubles may be present in the home and every marriage has some trouble. The line of physical harm may never be threatened without legal and immediate protective actions taken. Very important pillar to have in place so that we don't have a wrong understanding of this passage. Fourth pillar of protection. The Bible does grant two allowances for divorce. When a spouse has committed adultery and when an unbelieving spouse, an unbelieving spouse, this is 1 Corinthians 7, refuses to live with a believing spouse. A divorce is not required in those cases. There can be reconciliation and forgiveness, and we would urge that to be the first goal of every spouse in those situations. And yet, it is allowed. In those cases, obviously, the marriage can be dissolved. Fifth, the husband, his authority does not indicate his greater intelligence or gifting and absolutely not any greater worth in the sight of the Lord. Lest husbands be tempted to think that, this very passage in verse 7 reminds the husbands that their Christian wives are heirs with them of the grace of life. God makes it very clear in Genesis 1 that men and women are made in the image of God. 
They are equal in worth and dignity, equal in their access to God, equal in their salvation, equal in their calling to honor God in every aspect of life, equal in God's purposes for them to do great works in his name. Husband is not the mediator or savior of the wife. He is not her access to God. He is not her priest. He does not have greater access to God than she does. And a Christian wife is absolutely called to speak the truth in love to a Christian husband, to encourage him, to warn him when he sins, to share her wisdom with him, and to give him the benefit of her knowledge of God's word and this world. You can see why I might call those pillars of protection lest this passage be misunderstood or misapplied. None of these truths, however, should be used to water down or eliminate the clear command of this passage and elsewhere that God has given a particular authority for husbands in marriage based on his own mysterious wisdom and knowing myself and many of my friends, it is very mysterious that wives are called to submit to their own husbands. The husband has been given by God authority over his marriage. Perhaps one way to put this is that the final authority and responsibility for the family rests on him. You can see this design going all the way back to Genesis when Adam is created first, a point that Paul notes as a, a symbol of his authority and responsibility, his leadership, and he is then given the responsibility of naming Eve, a cultural designation of authority in her life. When Eve initiates sin with the fruit in the garden, God approaches Adam first, an indication of his ultimate responsibility. You can read Ephesians 5 for the expanded version of this mystery of God's purpose in marriage as, as revealing a picture of Christ in the church where the husband is to represent Christ and the wife is to represent the church and, and those roles cannot be reversed. They are meant to be depicted in every Christian marriage. So none of the pillars of protection can eliminate. You might imagine a, a backyard project where someone is looking to to create a beautiful garden or a beautiful yard for their family to be in. And that's the goal. That's the, that's the point of this particular project. And that the pillars, the walls which surround it are somehow inappropriately placed so central in the garden that they can no longer have a garden. They can no longer have a yard. And the owner of the house comes and says, what have, what have you done? Your, your pillars are so close together. There's, there's no place for the, the point of this project. Well, the point of this passage cannot be so protected as to be eliminated. It cannot be so watered down that it, it means the opposite. It's so explained as to say that wives... Be subject to your own husbands means wives do not be subject to your own husbands. And yet we can imagine a number of painful scenarios for a Christian wife. I'm sure, can we? In considering this command, and surely Peter and the Roman Empire had seen more than we have. What, what if the husband is selfish? What if he's not worthy of respect? What if he's an ungodly man? You can imagine a protest saying, well, well, surely if the husband is not godly, the wife need not be submissive. 
So Peter makes it abundantly clear. We can imagine quite surely in this scenario, there were pagan couples where the wife had become a Christian and was now asking what were her responsibilities to her unsaved husband. Does the selfishness or ungodliness of a husband release the wife from her role of submission in the marriage? So Peter makes it very clear. Be subject to your own husbands, he says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. The submission is to be in place even to an ungodly husband. And in that scenario where a husband has has hardened his heart to the word of God, the word of the gospel. The Lord has a purpose for this submission. It has this goal when he will no longer listen to the word of God. He may, Peter says, be one without a word by the conduct of his wife, by her respectful and pure conduct. There is this winsomeness that God has designed a submissive and godly wife to have even towards an ungodly husband. Now, to be very clear, in talking about ungodliness, with that other pillar that I referenced, that this is not ungodliness that is calling her to ungodliness, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about his own actions are ungodly. He is not a servant. He is not worshiping God. He is not leading his family towards godliness. This is this individual she can still submit to him in those categories that are not requiring her to sin. And in doing so, in having this kind of conduct that is respectful, that, that word probably is better translated there in verse 2, fear, it probably references the fear of the Lord. When they see her fear of the Lord and her pure conduct, God's goal is that they may be one. They may be one over. That's why I labeled this section winsome submission. It has this evangelistic purpose, this convicting purpose. And haven't we, haven't we all uh, had scenarios in our own lives where perhaps we had some failure of character and, and it was responded to by someone in our family, a child perhaps, or perhaps a spouse with, instead of anger, graciousness, and even humility and servanthood. And often, what is the case in our own hearts? We, we feel that sense of conviction and burden. And, and suddenly we, we feel the ogre that we actually are is put before us in stark relief with the godliness of this person. That's what Peter has in mind here, that this ungodly husband is put in stark relief with a godly wife, and in so doing, she, she gives him an opportunity to be one. Back to obedience to God's word. It is winsome authority. Winsome submission, rather, to authority. Again, the passage is clear. Their submission is not to be sinful in any way. It is in the fear of the Lord. It is pure. But, of course, we know there are many ways, many decisions in life, many practical decisions that are not expressly sinful, or the requirement of godliness is not being questioned. Uh, just to list a few, where, where will the family live? What kind of house will they live in? Will they have dinner at five or at seven? Will they vacation at the beach or the mountains? Will they stay at home for Christmas or visit the in-laws? Should they have green paint on the walls or red? And on and on and on. Only, only the most selfish husbands would choose to only serve himself in the myriad of practical decisions that a family has to make. But that's precisely the kind of husband that Peter has in mind. 
Someone who's not living for God, is not obeying him, is not loving him, and is looking only to serve himself in the ordinary decisions of life. And in those decisions, a godly wife can submit as long as it is not sinful. And in that pure and gracious and God-fearing demeanor, which includes submission where she can, without dishonoring God, she, she has this evangelistic calling to win him. A wife, a wife is not only called to submit to a serving husband. Just as a husband is not only called to serve a submissive wife. Actually, in this passage, a wife is explicitly called to submit to an ungodly husband. The, the temptation with passages like this is to just explain them away. Surely God can't mean that. Or perhaps to remain undecided about whether we will obey it or not. <laughs> that's nice for some people, and I'm not quite sure what I think about that, but that's an interesting philosophical discussion. But the right response to God's word is not only to obey when we like what it says, but to obey even when it's hard. Who made you? God made me. What did he make you to do? To love him and obey him. Who made you a wife, if you are a wife? God made me a wife. What did he make you a wife to do? One thing is to obey God by submitting in the fear of the Lord and with pure conduct to my husband. This passage is difficult to obey, but it is not unclear. It may require sacrifice and desperate dependence on the Lord, but it is not perplexing. And if you are a Christian wife or you are a friend of a Christian wife, it is crucial that you bring your mind and heart into submission to this truth. Winsome submission is a crucial way that a Christian wife loves God and obeys God. In a word to husbands, to reiterate, husbands, there is real authority that God has given husbands. And because there is real authority from God, there is a real accounting to God. Do not be the kind of husband described in this passage. It does not remove your wife's responsibility, but it will increase your accounting if you make her submission that much harder by your ungodliness. What would it be like for a husband who has spent his life in ungodly fashion, confronting the Lord who watched his wife submit to him in painful, sacrificial servanthood for a lifetime? What would it be like for that husband to face God? What would it be like for that wife to hear the well done of God? What would it be like for that wife who finds the may in this passage to be proven true, that in her humility and godly, pure conduct, this hard-hearted man suddenly comes to conviction and is open to the word of the gospel again. I'm going to speak a word if you have had an experience in the past 
where your marriage was broken apart in some way by sin. I want to reassure you of our affection for you as pastors and as a church. Perhaps your spouse was unwilling to live with you or refused not only God, but you. Listen, let's keep reading because this passage has wonderful encouragement for you. And if even right now, what is coming to your mind is the painful difficulty of submission to perhaps even a Christian husband, but one who you are aware of the burden of his ungodliness in your life. Listen, this is, this is why we come to God's word, not just so we have our orders, but so that we have the, the grace of knowing that God knows our situation. This very situation was written in God's word for you. God knows your situation. He, he is not surprised by it. He has not chosen in this instance to remove you from it, but he certainly will give grace for what he commands. He certainly will commend what he calls you to. God knows your situation. If you can point at your husband and every wife that I know, certainly mine included, can say there are areas where he does not obey God's word faithfully. Then wives, you can be confident God knows your situation. And has given you a a specific and challenging, a noble and heroic calling to win that man without a word when he has stopped listening to words. What a delightful, honoring task that God has chosen for such delightful, godly people as Christian wives to win the hardened heart. Winsome submission. Winsome submission is displayed by a Christian woman and there is a a beauty in that godliness and in that situation that is of great worth in God's sight and that is Peter's next point. Let's label this section beautiful character. Verse three, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, Peter is aware that in every culture, there is a temptation to prioritize physical beauty over character. Human beings are always tempted to look on the outside rather than on the inside. Peter may even be aware of Christian women in the church who are tempted to be winsome, not by their character, but by their physical attractiveness. To be tempted to gain power, not by the allure of godliness, but by the allure of physical charm. So he points them to an alternative. Don't let your adorning, he says, be external beautifying techniques, but rather godly character, a gentle and quiet spirits, which in God's sight, and you have to love and cherish and treasure these words in God's sight. That means God is watching and his perspective is that gentle and Christ-like spirit is very precious. It is precious to God. Who made you? God made me. What does he count as precious? A gentle and quiet spirit. 
Now, Peter, in mandating these examples about braided hair and gold jewelry and clothing, cannot mean in an absolute and categorical sense that a woman literally is never to do any of them, especially since one of them is literally putting on clothes. Uh, so we have to use just some common sense in understanding this passage. This is a very typical way of, of making a strong point. One commentator I read compared it to when Jesus says, unless you hate your father and mother, you are not worthy of me. Now, obviously, Jesus doesn't mean in every sense that you are to hate your father and mother. He is meaning that compared to the love of the Lord, love for even the closest relationships could be seen as hatred because of the greatness of the love for the Lord. It's, it's making a, a hyperbolic point. In the same way, I think here, he's not saying that no woman should ever, you know, I'm not asking every woman with braided hair here, just, just start pulling it out right now. No, that's, that's not what we're saying. Take off your jewelry. But, but he is saying so much lower a priority should your physical beauty be that it should be as if you are not adorning yourself with it at all compared to your passion to adorn yourself with godliness. Compared to your passion for godliness, you could honestly say, my adorning, what, what I look to beautify myself is, is not physical attractiveness. I, I'm not looking to adorn my body in any meaningful way compared to my passion and zeal and intentionality in adorning my soul. Let this not be the focus at all, Peter might say. Do not adorn yourself with these kinds of external attempts at beauty. In those days, elaborate hairstyles were used, along with costly jewelry and clothes to indicate a woman's wealth or status, and certainly to draw attention to herself. Peter says, don't seek adornment in those ways. Don't prioritize them or idolize them, but in contrast, set your focus on adorning yourself with the meekness and gentleness of spirit that he just described in Jesus Christ. Let your character shine from your lifestyle with a beauty that God himself sees and values. And I think there's an intentional contrast here when he says, don't let your adorning be external, but rather with the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. He is essentially reiterating the advice of the Proverbs that charm is deceitful and beauty is vanity. It is a mist, but... The woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The fear of the Lord, the psalmist says, is clean, enduring forever. So that woman who cultivates the fear of the Lord has a beauty that cannot be tarnished, that cannot decay, that does not decline with age, that is not minimized with the passing of time. It is imperishable. And haven't we all seen, and do we not have in this church, older women who grow in beauty as they age? Can't you call them to mind whose character glows from them with a glory even as their physical body declines, even as they face the possible approaching end of their days. The smiling face and gleaming eyes of a godly woman 
gives testimony to this promise. It is an imperishable beauty that does not fade. And I want to say to all of the godly women in this church that we rejoice with God's testimony over you, that you have an imperishable beauty, that every way in which you have sought to turn away from the idol of youthful beauty in this age and to prioritize godliness and the cultivation of this Christ-like, gentle, and quiet spirit, that we agree with the Lord that that beauty is precious. It is precious when you intentionally choose to not prioritize physical beauty and instead to prioritize godliness. It is precious of great value when there is a Christ-like spirit that has been cultivated by the intentional investment of time in his word, time in prayer, time pursuing godliness, rather than time pursuing physical attractiveness. We applaud that wise priority. Let me say a word to husbands. Husbands, how difficult is it for a wife to honor this passage if her husband prizes physical beauty over godliness? Let every husband discipline his eyes and his heart to agree with God and to prize godliness far more than physical beauty. Physical beauty is not demeaned in the Bible. It is a gift of God. It is meant to be enjoyed, but it is temporary in this fallen world. The husband has a responsibility to discipline his mind so that his attraction follows his will and he can genuinely find delightful what God delights in. Young men, if you are not yet married, let me tell you with all of the affectionate sternness that I can, don't you dare marry someone who is more passionate about physical beauty than godliness. Don't dabble with them. Don't be drawn to them. Charm is deceitful. When you are selecting and deciding who is the woman you will seek to pursue for marriage and who might be a candidate for that pursuit, you must prioritize what God prioritizes, lest you find yourself disagreeing with God in your very choice of a wife. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight, and it better be in ours, is very precious. Very precious. Wives, let me ask you, are you loving and obeying God in these ways? Are you submitting to your own husband in all the ways that you can? And is your focus on a Christ-like meekness and gentleness of spirit so much so that you could say you are not focused at all on physical beauty in comparison. Wives, are you grieved by an unsubmissive attitude or fixation on vanity in your life? I think it is a great temptation for every spouse, but this is addressing wives, to be far more grieved by the ungodliness of their husband than the ungodliness of unsubmissiveness in their own life. 
It is easy to be distracted by ungodliness in a husband or perhaps the greater vanity of others we see in the world when we should be presenting our own lives to him for examination. Ladies, lest you be tempted to think you are all alone in this challenge, Peter has one more point to make. It's one more point to make to encourage you, to embolden you, to honor you. Third point, godly heritage. Godly heritage. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. In the same way, he says, in the same way as the godly women of old, Peter comes to any wife who is seeking to follow this difficult command, seeking to honor the Lord and understandably facing the challenge of submission to an imperfect, at least an ungodly at worst, a husband. And he wants to encourage them. He wants to say, you are not alone. This is not the temptation when we have a difficult command. No one has had to face this. No one has to deal with what I have to deal with. Look, Peter, you don't understand how hard this is. You have not met my husband. You don't understand how difficult this command is for me. And so Peter comes along and says, let me, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you. There are many who have come before you. There is a heritage that you have of women who have honored Christ in this way. For this is how, he says, this is how the holy women, those women set apart to the Lord who hoped in God, those women who had placed their confidence in God and not in their own strength to gain them some kind of earthly prominence. This is how they used to adorn themselves, beautify themselves. How do they do it? By submitting to their own husbands. And if you need a, a very specific example, he says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. We might use the modern word sir or, or master. Now, Sarah is a perfect example of this kind of older godly woman that speaks now through the generations to every modern Christian wife. She is a perfect example for a couple of reasons. First of all, she was not always godly. <laughs> you can read Genesis to find that out. She was not always full of faith. And yet, here she's referenced as an example. And that should encourage every woman who is aware of her ups and downs in obeying this passage. Here, Sarah is honored as someone who did this, even though Sarah was not a perfectly godly woman. Not always full of faith. Not always hopeful and trusting in God had to be rebuked by the angel of the Lord himself. So that should encourage you. If, if Sarah, who was far from perfect, can be called an example here, then you can be encouraged. God is not, God is not looking at you and thinking, well, since you're not perfect, you are miserably failing. No, he's looking at you and saying, no, there is, 
There is a heritage of imperfect and yet faithful women that speak to you over the generations, that call out to you and say, you have a heritage to fulfill in this generation. You have a heritage to fulfill now in this time, while your heart beats, while your lungs breathe, you have a heritage to fulfill. And it's not a, a heritage of perfection. Sarah herself was not perfect. And yet it is a heritage of faithfulness in this kind of godliness. She's also a great example because she did not have an easy marriage. I mean, goodness gracious, if you read Genesis, I mean, Abraham was the father of many nations. He was not the model of a godly husband. In many cases, Israel came into existence in spite of what kind of a lousy husband Abraham was. That's not being unbiblical. That's being robustly biblical. Abraham is not the person that is pointed to as an example of a gentle and lowly husband caring for his wife at his own expense. He might be the example of the opposite. At least two different times, Abraham offered up Sarah and risked her purity and perhaps the future of the nation of Israel in order to protect himself. So if there is anyone who can understand the kind of fears that marriage to an imperfect or ungodly husband might come upon a woman's heart, Sarah understands. Sarah understands. And if Sarah, in marriage to Abraham, can be submissive in appropriate ways to him, then Peter's point is you can be her children as well. You can be her children as well. Listen, let me just direct your gaze to verse 6. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I'm not recommending that this become the new pet name in your household or something. But I do want to point something out. My suspicion is that in our culture, any use of the word obedience is uncomfortable. But here it is in God's word. Remember, those pillars are in place. This isn't obedience in sin. We're talking about obedience in extra biblical kinds of ways. But the word is obey. So we can't so define the authority of the husband in such a way that, well, really what we mean by authority is he just does whatever his wife wants. <laughs> biblical authority is the wife does whatever she wants because he's a servant. Well, it, it can't, that, that is putting those pillars so close together, you now have no yard left. This, this, the meaning has been taken away of this word. That there has to be some functional authority for there to be obedience. It is an uncomfortable word. This is one of those moments where we have to decide whether God's word has authority or whether we agree with Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. We, we, we must embrace be protected but the meaning of this word this is the calling this is the calling that he is bringing to christian wives to follow the example of sarah who obeyed abraham calling him lord and he says you are her children if you do good and in context this is good in the context of marriage good for this individual this man that you are married to and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, how many fears could come to a woman's mind as she considers following this command? Even the best husbands 
often make stupid decisions that can cause great burden and grief to their wives. The best husbands are sometimes motivated by selfishness rather than servanthood, and that selfishness can be a great trial to their wives. The worst husbands can be absolute ogres and can demand respect, though they will not love their wives as Christ loved the church. Couldn't a godly wife face the fear of a lifetime of laying down her life in humble submission and not getting any love in return? I think that's an understandable fear. Couldn't she fear having to pay in practical ways for the foolish decisions that her husband makes as the head of her household? Couldn't she fear the shame of the culture or perhaps even members of her own immediate family asking the question, why do you stay with such a selfish man? Peter looks out at these Christian exiles. These women who have given themselves to Jesus Christ, who have been made a part of the people of God, who are the children of the promise. And he can say to them, you are daughters of Sarah. And we know that is true as you give evidence of bearing the family resemblance. And the family resemblance for Christian daughters is godly, humble, Christ-like submission, even in difficult circumstances. You are her daughters, he says. If you do what is good and do not fear anything that is frightening, this is not works righteousness. This is not saying you're saved by being this way, saying because, because the people of Christ always give evidence of Christ in their lives. When we look at this in your life, we can see the family resemblance. You look like your mothers in the faith. You look like them. I recognize that attitude. I recognize that godliness. I recognize that humble heart in that painful situation. I recognize it. I've seen that before. A submissive wife is one of the evidences that she is a woman in Christ, a child of promise. It does not earn her salvation, but it is part of the evidence of it. We can also say it. In contrast, an unsubmissive wife is not revealing herself to be a daughter of Sarah, a daughter of godliness, a child of faith. Now, it is not an accident that right before calling the wives to this difficult mission, Peter reminded them of the Lord Jesus. He reminded them of the one who saved them by submitting to his father's will to die for their sins. So that when they bear this burden, this heavy task, this heavy mission that God has entrusted to them, they can look to the one who bore their sins. When they are reviled for righteousness sake, when they do good and receive evil in return, they can look to the one who was reviled in order to save them. When they bear the crushing weight of foolish authority, they can look to the one who was crushed under the weight of their own sins 
who when threatened did not threaten in return, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And I think that passage is also in view when Peter says, likewise, likewise, wives, you also can follow in the footsteps of this humble and meek, gentle and lowly master who served Lord who laid down his life to lift up sinners. And when I consider a passage like this as a husband, I am aware of how my sin makes it harder for my wife to obey the Lord in this way. And so I need also to go back and remember that my sins as a husband were born by that servant on that tree. And I am sure that every wife is aware of some area in her life where she is not living up to this passage. She is not perhaps trusting God. She is not perhaps gentle and peaceful in every circumstance. She is is not perhaps looking to God with her fears. But she can look just a little further up the passage to see the solution for that very conviction. Wives, if you are convicted that your lives don't line up with this passage of Scripture, let me encourage you, look a little further up and remember that Christ Jesus bore your sins in his body on the tree and your Failures do not bar you from his accepting and forgiving grace. And his affection for you is not limited because of your sins. And now you have the opportunity where appropriate to repent of those sins, to take them to the cross and to resolve anew, to live a life that is precious in God's sight, precious in Christ and precious displaying Christ in this Difficult mission that God has entrusted to you. A godly woman honors Christ, the Christ who died for her, the Christ who suffered more than any human being could ever suffer, the Christ who, when reviled, did not revile in return, the Christ who bore our sins in his body on the tree, the Christ who brought us into salvation, the Christ who entrusted himself to his Father and rose from the dead and will call every beleaguered saint home to receive the reward of their faithfulness. A Christian woman honors that Christ by godly submission, even to an ungodly husband. And what will it be like for every Christian woman sitting in this room or listening to this message when they face that Christ on that final day and hear his well done? Well done. Well done for suffering for righteousness sake. Well done for submitting to an unworthy one. Well done for loving the unlovable and the unloving. Well done. Precious in my sight. Let me inspire you. The sight of Christ is worth. Who made you? God made you. What did he make you to do? Love him and obey him. Who saved you? Christ, by his death in my place. Let us live our lives in obedience to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the gift 
of the godly women of this church. Lord, I am humbled and inspired by their example. Lord, I pray for every wife who looks back on past seasons with regret or sadness, either because of her sin or because of the sin of her husband. But thank you that we can bring those griefs to you. And thank you that you renew all things and you are making all things new. And we can lay every regret and every sadness at the foot of your cross and come to you with new faith and joy and trust. Lord, for every wife that is even now seeking to honor her husband, every friend of every Christian wife that seeks to encourage in a biblical way, Lord, may our hearts and speech and affections be lined up with your word. Your word is our life. You are the master of our fate. You are the captain of our soul. For every husband and every man, cause us to be the loudest in applause of Christian God. Women. Use our mouths to encourage them, to build them up. Make us godly to ease their burden. Make us loving to reflect your love of them and impress on the heart of every Christian wife right now, by your spirit. They are great worth in your sight. Receive our affection and our worship. In Jesus' name.